Just to let you know, this episode contains some discussion of sexual offending and use of the language around that. Another caution, if you have not listened to part one of this episode, then this is not going to make heaps of sense and not going to be as interesting. So do that and come back. It's only 20 minutes of your time. Well spent. Previously, the Farajama case started with a uh, woman found in a nightclub toilet with her pants down. She was unconscious and was woken up. There were no fingerprints of his on the scene. His, uh, there were no telephone records, no phone records suggesting he'd been in the area. His image did not appear on the security cameras from the venue that night. Forensics from uh, the rape crisis kit, a uh, sample from her vagina, uh, contained a small amount of sperm uh, from which they were able to derive a DNA profile. And she hadn't had sex with anyone, so the simple message from that was that she'd been raped. For him to have carried out this rape, he would have had to, say, spike the lady's drink uh, in the nightclub. Uh, she was found in the toilets. So dragging her to the toilets um, in a place where there was evidence that there was about 600 to 800 people in the club that night. Raping her and sort of half dressing her up afterwards and leaping over the wall of the locked cubicle, again, because that's how she was found, and disappearing into the night without anyone being seen anything. Even as lawyers, you kind of struggle with that concept that DNA could be wrong. Because like you say, you've got, you know, forensic programs and dramas and serials on television and movies where if anyone says DNA, Oh, well, you know, I was guilty. During the trial, there there was a point at which the jury asked a question and the judge even joked, joked about it in their absence. He joked with the other barristers and said, ah, the inevitable question has been asked. It's a question that I refer to as the kind of elephant in the room, the question that hung over the whole case, really. And that was, how did the police get Jarvis' DNA in the first place? I'm James Milsom, and this is The Rule Book. So we've got this inquisitive jury and they're faced with this DNA evidence and, and nothing else that, and they're being asked by a prosecutor to convict Farajama. They're asking questions and this discomfort comes over the court because the questions that they're asking cannot be answered. Not to them at least. Because they're asking about what Farajama's done in the past and they're not allowed to know. Because, in part, the rules are based on this assumption that if someone's done something wrong before, that they're kind of a wrongdoer, that they'll do wrong things again. It's this weird and not very human assumption. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense, in, I, th- I think, through certain lenses. Anyway, that's the rule. So, to protect Farajama using the rule, uh, the judge says... That is irrelevant for the purposes of this trial and you are not to speculate about it. So this jury, this post-CSI effect world jury who are asking questions but not being answered, convict him. They say he's guilty and he goes to jail. 
But there was something in the jury's question. There was something that held the key to Farajama's defence and yet didn't come out at his trial. Here's what the jury didn't hear. So the night before... Julie Zago, she's a journalist here in Melbourne. Jama and two of his Somali friends were out at a pool hall in Reservoir. Another Melbourne suburb almost 20 kilometres away from Doncaster. And they hooked up with a young woman and the four of them went off together in a car and certain sexual encounters took place in the car and after this the young woman was very distressed and she went to the police and she alleged that she had been forced to perform oral sex on the three men. And the police investigated her complaint and they questioned Jama and he agreed, he admitted to the encounter but he said it was fully consensual. And the police said, well, okay, but uh, can you give us a DNA sample? It's just routine. And he said, yes, gave them a sample. That young woman dropped her complaint. There was no charge laid against Farajama. And the complainants in that sexual assault had actually been taken to the same rape, rape crisis centre and dealt with by the same doctor the day before the woman from the nightclub. Jeremy Gans, a professor at Melbourne Law School, that was this, in the previous... Uh, alleged rape, uh, it was accepted by everything, everyone that Farajama's semen was in her hair. And that's important because it means it could get anywhere in the rape crisis centre. Okay, important bit of law in Victoria, uh, because police had Farajama's DNA, they're allowed to hang on to it for a year, even though he was never charged with an offence. So what do we now know? There was a sample of Farajama's DNA in the database. The jury were not allowed to know how it got there. We now know how it got there. After Farajama was sent to prison, his parents engaged new lawyers. Hina Pasha, who you've heard from, and Kimani Bowden, her husband, worked on the case together. Hina told me Farah's mum came to visit them. And obviously she was quite distraught, and uh, she's a obviously Somali origin, and um, and of Islamic religion. The mother came in to see me, and she's a uh, uh, covered with a what you call a hijab, which is obviously something that's fairly um, common amongst the Somali community and many other Muslim communities and whatnot. And you can imagine, a, you know, a son having been taken from your home one evening when they're just studying and um, treated like a criminal and put in a divvy van and getting interviewed and getting accused of rape um, on top of it all. And uh, that son then doing some 15 to 18 months in prison behind bars when they're about to start uni. So Farajama's case becomes an appeal against the conviction. It lands on a prosecutor's desk. The prosecutor is Brett Sonnet. He wasn't able to be interviewed uh, for this podcast. There's a prosecution's policy that says that he can't. But here's Julie. And once he sat down and read the transcript, he realised it was a nonsense. He thought Jama couldn't possibly have done this. And so his task then, he, as he saw it, was to get Jama off and clear his name. But to do that, of course, he had to solve the riddle of the DNA. The prosecutor realised very quickly that there was an alternative explanation of everything that had happened in the nightclub 
which was that the sperm that was found in her vagina actually wasn't in her vagina at all. It never was in her vagina. It was just on a the swab, which had been left on a tray, and perhaps the tray hadn't been cleaned properly, and the swab or some other leftover from the previous complainant had ended up on that swab. The likelihood is that Farajama had nothing to do with the nightclub, uh, and in fact that the complainant almost certainly wasn't raped. She just had some alcohol and some drugs and passed out for whatever reason in the toilet. So both of them were misled about what happened. Uh, all of this came out, but by that time, Farajama had spent a year in jail. Quick reflection on who knew what and when. The prosecution always would have known that there had been an incident that got Farajama's DNA into the system. They could have known more about it had they decided to find out. Not sure. Can never know. The defence may have known uh, something about it if they had have inquired. That's where it gets a little bit more quirky. The defence obviously know that there's Farajama's DNA is in the database. That much they can tell by the fact that there's a DNA guy in the witness box. They may have decided to try to find out why there was his DNA in the database. But as a former criminal defence lawyer, I can say that there's every chance that they might just not have asked. You hear things from time to time about whether criminal lawyers are, um, should defend people who are, who are guilty. But most of the time, the lawyer doesn't even ask whether the person's guilty or not. The reason for that is you really can't act for somebody if you know that they're guilty. You can't lie to the court. Um, and, that, and look, that gets way more complicated and is a little bit beside the point. The point of raising that was really just to say... There can be more than one reason why people involved in the case, the lawyers on either side, didn't figure out what Brett Sonnet later figured out. What's interesting to me about this case is that the secret to discovering that there was a miscarriage of justice and that this was all a fiction uh, uh, raised by contaminated DNA was knowing about the other allegation against Farajama. The system did its best, as it always does, to stop the jury knowing about that. Uh, They had to be vague about how his sample got matched onto the database. Uh, They didn't tell the jury that he was on the database because he'd been previously charged. They just didn't mention that at all. They acted as if he was tested for a reason the jury wouldn't be told. Uh, And you can understand why they did that. If the jury is puzzling over, well, did this guy have anything to do with a nightclub? And think, well, he seems like a nice guy. He denies even being there. Why would he do this? And then they discover, well, someone else has alleged that he's a rapist, albeit in completely different circumstances. Uh, they might rush to judgment and think this is a dangerous person. And maybe there's more to it we're not being told as well. But, but uh, they may well have been quicker to convict than they actually were in this case, had they been told that. So I can understand why they want to keep that information away from them. Like we mentioned before, the jury was asking questions. There were just rules saying that they weren't allowed to know the answers. They asked the forensic witness, is contamination a possibility? And were immediately told there's no evidence of that, uh, even though it turned out later that some of the people in the forensic lab and the police had worried about the risk of contamination but hadn't thought of the rape crisis centre as a source of contamination. 
And there was a history of contamination in Victoria's DNA lab. They asked exactly the right questions uh, that would have solved the case, but in each case were fobbed off by the court on a sound ground. That they, The court was worried that if the jury thought too much about this, they would be quicker to convict him wrongly. So then whether we're a making a murder effect jury or a CSI effect jury or even maybe they're both fictions, we all kind of know that there can be DNA contamination, that sort of thing. It's in the media enough that we're aware. So were there other factors here? Are there things about DNA that we don't understand? Or are there things entirely different that we haven't talked about yet? First, a quick how DNA can go wrong with Jeremy Gaines. These subtle pitfalls can happen. So one is the possibility two people just happen to have the same DNA profile by unfortunate coincidence. Uh, a second possibility is contamination, and usually that's contamination in the lab, but in this case it was contamination at a rape crisis centre. It can also be contamination at a crime scene, police car, police station, that sort of thing. Uh, transfer of clothing, people touching each other, and so on. The third possibility is just an innocent explanation. Um, uh, not, not in that particular case, but in other cases, your DNA might just be completely innocently at a spot. It's a version of contamination, but you may have no ability to explain why your DNA is at that spot because you might not have been there. You might just have touched someone or something which ended up there. Uh, and those possibilities have to really be kept in mind. The UK courts say that that third possibility is enough reason on its own not to prosecute purely on the basis of DNA. So we don't have a law or policy like the one that Jeremy just talked about in the UK, not in Victoria. However, I think that makes us think, well, are there other factors at play? Was there something else behind Farajama being prosecuted in such a bizarre way? Julie literally wrote the book on it. I don't think it's a coincidence that it happened to him. No. I think that it could only have happened to someone like him. I don't think it would happen even to a white working class kid. Underlying this discussion is the fact that Australia is not without its cultural prejudices. It's, there are issues in Australia around race and religion and culture and difference. That's a pretty big other issue that we won't you know, go into in heaps of depth. It's important to note, though, because looking at Farajama's case, he was a black Somali refugee background, Muslim family. So all of these things, um, I think that we've got to factor them in in an analysis. Whether or not that means that they really played a part, I think that we've got to at least ask the question. Uh, I was told apparently that it was very difficult for the for the family to even get their heads around the possibility that their son might have been in a nightclub. No, that was uh, that was such a shock to them that allegation, let alone the rape as well. So again, people bring their cultural baggage to their interactions with the criminal justice system. I think it's a really big part of what happened here. I think that the worst thing about it... Hina uh, Pasha, one of Jama's lawyers again. ...with the crime of rape is that it's a pretty heinous act. I mean, murder is a heinous act, but somehow rape and, you know, sexual offences in Islamic terms and particularly a family such as Farah Jama's, you could imagine that their son being accused of rape in circumstances where, you know, families have arranged marriages and there's certain um, ways in which you treat women, you know, and women are treated with the highest of respect 
in the Islamic faith, despite what many, what society might believe, to be honest. Um, to be accused of rape um, was probably the worst possible crime he could have been accused of having committed. Um, even if it would have been car theft, if it would have been a shop steal, if it would have been an assault, it's still different somehow. Not that they're not serious, but still different to what was being alleged against him. So you could imagine what that family must have gone through. It's easy to think that, well, why didn't Barajama just tell someone, tell his lawyers, tell his family, tell someone about this uh, sexual interaction that he actually had, the one that got his DNA into the system. But it's maybe clearer to see that, well, it's just not that easy culturally and, and in accordance with religion and expectations and family. It's just not that simple. We're talking about a very close family and they were very uh, passionate as they, as they needed to be um, in making sure that JAMA had the best defence. But I think that their presence and their involvement meant that JAMA couldn't have entirely candid conversations perhaps with his own barrister about his prior dealings with the police. And I can go into that if you want me to. But that's why I talk about the silences um, in terms of, also in terms of how the family represented themselves. He, I also believe that to some extent um, their background and culture and, you know, the language and um, the stereotypes that, you know, we're faced with in society didn't really help at the time might have been different had it been um, a local Caucasian. It might have been slightly different or someone from a wealthier family who were a bit more outspoken and well, um, well-spoken in terms of, you know, proclaiming their son's innocence. I don't really know. But I, I, I imagine that the stereotypes that he faced didn't help him. Something so strange as this obviously must have been covered in the media. And it has. Uh, Google up Farajama's name and you'll find a lot. You will also find, if you look for it, a report from Justice Frank Vincent. Uh, That was a report following an inquiry into this case. And it's really interesting reading. And it really parallels, uh, in a lot of ways, this discussion that we've had about the CSI effect and the making a murderer effect uh, and or whether both or either were at play here. We kind of have seen that this was a jury that was maybe uh, more inquisitive, more uh, a thinking jury. On the other hand, we've seen that this was a jury that only had really this DNA evidence to, 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 to look at and convicted on the basis of it. So perhaps it got CSI'd a tiny bit. Uh, Frank Vincent, he talked about uh, about the DNA evidence putting a spell on everyone involved in this trial. I call it a kind of hypnotic suggestion. Maybe one of the most unique and interesting and intriguing things about this case is that the science was not wrong. We didn't see the typical DNA contamination like we've seen so many times in the media and and so on. I've just realised I'm kind of ripping off Julie, who said... The science in this particular case was not actually wrong, right? It was the assumptions made that were wrong. That is almost it. I hope that you've got a lot out of this story. I, in honesty, have got a lot out of just making it.
I just want to play you some audio from towards the end of my interview with Julie Zago. What kind of uh, what kind of predator were we supposedly talking about here? I mean, we were talking about the most cunning predator you could imagine. I mean, he even dressed his victim up afterwards. He even supposedly uh, leapt over the you know the toilet cubicle wall, leaving the door closed so that so that what so that his victim would kind of wake up and not necessarily even realise what had happened to her, not even realise she'd been violated. I mean, this is one very serious predator. Now, you'd think that if somebody behaves this way once... Sure, that, yeah... That there'd be some evidence of, uh, of this character, you know, elsewhere. And it's so bizarre for such a sophisticated criminal yeah. enterprise to leave the DNA... Um, ready in waiting like you'd, you'd figure someone with <laughs> someone so diabolical would have, would have thought of that too possibly yes mm. I, don't I don't know maybe I don't mm. have a criminal mind <laughs> Thank you for listening to the rule book james milsom is my name i produced this episode and i provided the music interviews from this episode included julie zago journalist whose book the tainted trial of farajama gives a compelling and far more detailed account of this case professor jeremy gans from the melbourne law school and Hina Pasha, lawyer. If you want to find out more about The Rule Book, uh, head to the website, therulebook.xyz. You can also tweet at rulebookpodcast, and there's a Facebook page as well, so like away. Trixie Studio.